It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. There's a rise in hate speech online. Bullying is a growing problem. We have divided governments, and sometimes it may feel like we're surrounded by hate. Joining us today to talk about how we can stop the proliferation of hate is Matthew Williams, founder and director of Hate Lab and a professor of criminology. Matthew is regarded as one of the world's foremost experts in hate crime and hate speech. He advises and has conducted research for TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Google, the Ministry of Justice, and the U.S. Department of Justice. Matthew's research has appeared in numerous documentaries, radio and television programs, and on Amazon and Netflix. He's the author of the book, The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate, and What We Can Do to Stop It. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, Matthew, it feels like we are constantly being bombarded with hate. Do you think we're seeing an increase in hate speech and bullying, or are we just more sensitized to it? Well, the argument I make in the book is that due to various factors like social media and the extent to which social media is unregulated, that we that we are seeing more hate now and polarization than, than ever before. But one of the key problems, of course, when you study this subject scientifically like I do, is the fact that it's kind of hard to measure these kinds of things. So it's really hard to measure online hate speech because the tech giants don't really give you that much information on how much there is and how much they've removed. And it's really hard to actually measure hate crime on the streets as well. So, for example, it might surprise you to hear that in the U.S. uh, in 2021, there were around about 7,000 hate crimes recorded by police agencies, but about 150,000 hate crimes recorded by the the U.K. government. And that's that's a ridiculously huge difference. But it doesn't really mean that there's, you know, there's more hate crime in the UK or that the UK is more intolerant than the US. It just means that we're measuring it very differently from from you folks, um, and that's a major problem for us in the study of hatred in a scientific way. Is actually, how you measure it. But the main the main issue that I take up in the book is the fact that new communications technologies have accelerated hate to to new heights. Well, and I can understand that because we're giving a forum for people to express their feelings. But do you think that there's something happening within us as human beings? I mean, when I grew up, I was always taught, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So why do you think we as humans feel that we have this permission, I guess, to just say these hateful things? Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I, and I do ascribe this more and more so down to social media, really, and 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 the birth of the internet in the mid nineties. Um, you know, I started studying the internet back in the nineties, and one of the very first things I encountered was harassment and hate speech back then, and mm-hmm. that sparked my interest in in trying to understand why people were doing this online more and more. 
one of the key reasons, and this is this is a psychological perspective on this, is called disinhibition. Um, when we use the internet, we identify that there's a, a distance between us and the people that we're speaking to, and that distance kind of frees people up to say things that they wouldn't say, say down the local bar or, or in a local community centre to another person that might be a bit different from them for some reason, or they might treat with suspiciousness. And that distance that's produced, that psychological feeling of distance on the internet, creates this this opportunity to voice things that you would not normally say in good company offline. Um, one of the things I would say is that I don't argue that the likes of Zuckerberg and, and, and the Dorseys and those that set up these big social media companies knew that this would happen. I think they, they set out with the, with the agenda of creating a more tolerant and inclusive society. They thought that the more contact you create between strangers, the more that you break down barriers and negative stereotypes and the more you'd create a social harmony. Um, and, and, you know, Actually, there is science that backs that up called the contact hypothesis that was developed uh, in the 1950s in the U.S. Um, and unfortunately, uh, what the tech giants forgot in, in their endeavors to grow and, and, and get bigger, bigger platforms and profits is that that contact has to be positive contact to create that more tolerant uh, society. What's happening is that we're seeing more negative contact than positive, unfortunately. And that then gets reinforced by what are known as their engagement algorithms, the algorithms that are designed to push far more salacious and extreme content in our way because they know it keeps us engaged for longer. And the longer we're on the platform, uh, the more money they can make from advertising to us. It's an unfortunate situation that mm -hmm. things like hate a sticky. We call them. The, the, we call them sticky. They 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 draw our attention. It's like when you're driving past a car accident. You don't want to look, but you always take that final last glance as you pass pass that accident. You didn't want to look, but you just couldn't stop yourself. It's the same with hate speech and and more extreme content on social media. They know that it catches our attention. So the engagement algorithms that learn this um, through various sort of online uh, technical techniques um, essentially means that hate becomes profitable, unfortunately. And the only way to break that cycle is to turn off those engagement algorithms and to turn them off would cost a lot of money to these big, big companies. Mm -hmm. And everything you say makes so much sense, Matthew, because when you're going to say something hurtful and you're, and you're behind a computer screen with a keyboard, you don't have to look at someone's face and see the pain in their eyes or see the, yeah. you know, what it is you're inflicting upon that person. And I always say to myself, I would hate to be a teenager today because I remember growing up, if you went to school and, and you were bullied or someone said something unkind to you, you could go home and kind of turn it off for a number of hours before you had to go back and face it again. But today it's incessant. It comes yeah. at you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, and I think that's why hate is more insidious. And I think the impact of it on us and our families, our children, our, our friends and our loved ones is more extreme because it is a 24-7 phenomenon. It, it's if you think about bullying in the school playground, um, you know, that used to be confined. In my day and your day, it was when we were kids in school, that was confined to the walk-in and the walk-home uh, from school and maybe in the school playground. Today, kids are suffering it 24-7. The sanctity of the home has been eroded 
by the prevalence of technology. Now, I agree that technology is a wonderful thing, and it brought us amazing advancements across the board in, in, in economy, in medicine, uh, in, in sociality. You know, it, it is, there are strong benefits to having this technology. But what we've done in the rapid, in the rapid uh, um, sort of desire to grow and get there quicker, we've forgotten about the safeguarding elements. And, and now we're playing catch-up, and governments are playing catch-up, trying to backtrack and trying to figure out how we retrofit and fix the technologies to make our, our kids and our loved ones safer. But yeah, the, the insidiousness of hate is is all the more pervasive today. And one of the one of the things I one of the thought experiments I tell my students sometimes is imagine if, if Joseph Goebbels had social media back in the Second World War and and, and what damage could have been done. Uh, in terms of sort of propagating false narratives, mis and disinformation and division using this technology, it would be terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying back then, uh, and there's, there's not much that compares to it. But to imagine if they had this technology back then, how much worse it could have been is a terrifying thought. So what you just spoke about, there being money and negativity and hate. We know that the people that have the power who are making the money aren't going to do anything about this. So what can we do what, as individuals and as parents? What can we do to solve the problem for ourselves? That's yeah, a really good question. and it's, uh, it's one that I always wrestle with. I think, I think this problem is so huge that we need a multi-pronged approach. So I think we definitely need social media companies to to stand up and take a bit more responsibility. And I think they're starting to do that, although they, they're not doing enough, because as, as you said, it, it, will, it can damage their profits. They won't turn off those engagement algorithms. Um, policing has to take this more seriously. I think, you know, um, sheriff's departments up and down the country in the US and, and uh, up and down the country in the UK and across the world, police have to take online hate speech a bit more seriously than they're currently doing. Governments have to put in place legislation to make sure the police have the powers then to regulate this stuff. But ultimately, I think where we'll see the most change is, is in users. But me, you, our kids, everyone else that uses social media, if we stand up and we start regulating that space ourselves, if we become upstanders against hate instead of bystanders, then I think we'll start to see rapid change. And we have to do this in a safe way. I'm not suggesting that listeners go in and wade into an argument and, and create even more hate speech by, by going in without any careful thought and consideration. I think this can be done safely. And the book actually details how you can engage in what we call counter speech in a safe way online. Um, but if we do it en masse, if we do it as a crowd, if we, you know, the tens of thousands of millions of social media users on the bigger platforms, then we'll see, uh, uh, likely see a rapid change. And some experimentation was done in my lab actually proves that that's the case. So when a person who's spreading hate speech is basically approached by uh, a witness or an onlooker um, that sees it and is challenged in some way, then they actually start to change their behavior. Not everyone does. You know, there are some people who are too hardened to this, that are too far gone that, that won't change their behaviors. But a good sizable proportion will. The evidence suggests about 30% of people who are targeted with hate speech will change their behaviors, and for a good while. So having individuals like ourselves on the ground 
we, we become the first responders effect, effectively to hate speech when we see it. We can do this really quickly, much more quickly than, say, policing can or governments can or even platforms can. And if we get in there at the right time and take responsibility for the environment that we've created, because it is at the end of the day, social media is made up of us. Without us, it's nothing. Then we can start to see some real change. So what I really do in the book at the end is call is, is give out this call to action. It's a manifesto for change, really. It's arguing that we need to take responsibility for this as well as governments, police, and the big platforms. I think also, Matthew, it would require us to take a, a hard look at ourselves as human beings. What type of person do we want to be? And, and really police our own behavior. Ask ourselves, is this something I should say? Will this hurt another person? And, you know, really start to look within and try to figure out why we feel that need to say something so hurtful. Yeah, that's a really important point. Uh, In the book, I argue that we're all prejudiced. Um, There there is no person on this planet, I will argue, that doesn't have a prejudice. Um, The reason for that is because we're brought up in a culture that is in itself prejudiced in multiple ways. It has a preference for certain groups of people, um, and there are other groups that uh, suffer because of that. Um, it may be some of it benign, some of it a bit more malignant and a bit more harmful. But because we grow up in that culture and as kids, you know, it's really difficult to, to basically say what does go into your brain and what does not go into your brain when you're, when you're observing things on television and you're reading books and you're being taught by teachers and so on and your friends and family you will get a certain version of the world told told to you by those sources. And it, it, inevitably, it's a biased picture. And it was certainly more biased when we were growing up. I, I don't know uh, what decades you would call your formative years, but I grew up in the 80s, uh, and, and um, it was a pretty biased time. You know, it, it's not like it is now. It was still biased now, but it was worse back then. And you know, I grew up in that culture, and that culture had its way with me. I, I remember, for example pondering of whether or not I should I should come out as a gay man um, in my late 20s. And one of the main reasons I stayed in the closet for so long is because I had what I can only describe as internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a bit prejudiced against gay people because of the culture that I'd grown up in. Um, I grew up in the midst of the HIV epidemic. Um, there were, uh, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time, had introduced something called Section 28 that forbid teachers from talking about homosexuality in schools. Um, so, you know, you had no one to talk to about this stuff. And it was a culture of fear and intimidation. And, of course, that had its way with me. And I was terrified about coming out as a homosexual because I just thought that my family would disown me and that, that my life would be ruined. Um, that wasn't the case. I did come out and every, everyone accepted me, which is fantastic. But for a long time... I knew I had this kind of form of internalized homophobia. And that's an interesting observation. If we, if we can think of a, of a person who is gay also thinking in, 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 in potentially homophobic ways, that tells you a lot about how culture play, has, has its way with you when you're, you're actually uh, uh, social, being socialized as a young adult. So you're right. We all have to take a long, hard look at ourselves to identify what kinds of prejudices that we actually have, and then start to challenge those. You talk about everyone having some form of prejudice, and I do think that there's a lot of self-reflection that's required. But if someone is a victim 
of a hate crime. What is your best advice for that person? What can he or she do to try to find help or to even just mitigate the personal damage that's done? Yes. I mean, the, the personal damage is, is, can be very significant. Um, you know, as, as a victim myself, I, I went through the psychological trauma of, of being a victim of a hate crime. It changed my professional life and my personal life. Um, that was a key motivation for writing the book and a key motivation for, for studying criminology and criminal justice. Um, just to figure out why I was targeted uh, um, about 20 years ago. And each each person's decision in terms of whether or not they they report it uh, and how they deal with that victimization is very personal. Um, I would argue that no matter what you think about the police in your local area, you should report it if you, if you feel safe to do so. I know different areas have different problems and relationships between groups in certain communities in the States and uh, policing is fraught with, with contention. Um, that's totally understandable. But I would argue that you should always report it, uh, for, even if it's just to get that statistic uh, out there and, and sent up to, to the FBI uh, when they do their annual counting. Because the more that we can see hate crimes on record, the more that the government will do about it and the more money will be put into protecting people from hate crime. Um, so I would always say report it. If it's online, I would definitely report it to the platform. So Twitter, Meta, uh, TikTok, whoever it might be. That's your first port of call. Uh, they will usually respond within 24 to 48 hours. Um, that's the typical response time that they give. They'll give you a decision on whether or not they think that the, the hate speech broke their policies or not. And they may, as a response, you know, suspend a user who sent it. Um, if, if you don't get any joy with that, then you could uh, potentially report that online hate speech to the police. Whether or not they'll take it seriously is another matter. Uh, I know in the United States, for example, the laws are not as stringent as they are in the UK. In the UK, we have very stringent laws on hate speech. Um, uh, while we do also protect freedom of expression, uh, but in the US, it's, it's the, the laws on hate speech are a bit weaker, unfortunately, from my understanding and my perspective. So it, it, it does feel to some victims, I think, in the U.S. that, that sometimes no one's listening mm -hmm. and that to actually actually get anyone to listen um, is very difficult indeed. Um, what, what we've done in our research is actually find that sharing this news with, with family members and loved ones is also equally as important to get that emotional support that you need post-victimization. Um, you know, sharing it with parents, sharing it with siblings um, or whoever else you're connected with in your on your wider circle of friends, sharing the experience is really important. When I was attacked, I didn't tell anybody for a good week or so. Um, and then I did eventually uh, tell friends and, and they came to my aid and I had a lot of support and I needed that. I didn't realize I needed it as much as I did at the time, but I did and it, it really did help. So sharing the experience is really important. There are also some really great support groups out there. Um, so, for example, up and down the U.S., there are many, many great support groups that that uh, are, are, are great at um, giving advice on our victimization and any any aspect of of victimization uh, to to groups of individuals who are routinely victimized. So, for example, during COVID, 
um, there was a spate of anti-Asian hate crimes across the world, not only just the States, but we had it in the UK and Australia and, and other parts of the world also saw the numbers of hate crimes against that population increase dramatically. And there were some great organizations out there that were supporting that community and trying to get their message out there. That this was a major problem. Matthew, if, if someone believes that he or she may be a victim of a hate crime, but doesn't really understand what a hate crime is, can you give us a definition or, or explain what one looks like so that he or she would know that it would be time yeah. to take action? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. It is, it is difficult because the legislation in the U.S. differs by state. Um, there, are na- there are national bits of legislation, you know, at the, at the federal level that, that apply, but only in the most serious and grievous of cases. Um, in terms of the state level, it varies by state, so it can get very confusing, and I appreciate that most victims may not be aware. But the general, the general tenet is that you're being targeted because of who you are. So it, it can be any kind of crime. It can be theft, it can be violence, it, it, it can be uh, any kind of criminal act. Um, but if you feel that you've been targeted because of your identity, that identity can be race, religion, sexual orientation, disability, transgender identity, and so on, um, then there's a chance that that would count as a hate crime. If, they, if the police can prove that that perpetrator genuinely targeted you or the group of people that you're with because of your difference or a characteristic of your identity, then then that would count as a hate crime in most states in the U.S. There are a couple of states where the legislation still isn't great, um, but for most states now, uh, the legislation would, would mean that what happens in those situations where an identity is the main motivator for an attack would be classed as a hate crime. Are you hopeful that we'll be able to turn this around? I have to be. I, I don't think I'd be able to do this job if I thought that there wasn't hope, light at the end of the tunnel, there wasn't hope somewhere in the narrative. I, I, I don't have children myself, but I've got nieces and nephews, and they between the ages of, of four and 12. And I look at them, and I look at the culture that they're growing up in now. It's not perfect. But it's certainly very different from the 70s and the 80s when we grew up in that culture. Um, they're far more tolerant. They're far more accepting. They're far more open-minded than, than the generations before them. So when I look into the future, I see them as adults. And I can see them being much less hateful than, than uh, uh, folks that grew up in our generation. And I just think it's because society has become somewhat more civilized, um, even though when we read the news day in, day out, it sometimes doesn't feel that way. Um, on the whole, on that macro level, when you take that kind of 10,000-foot view from above and you look at the developments um, in so the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the trans rights movement that we're seeing right now, um, I think that the future is brighter than it is right now. And, and I have to believe in that because ultimately, yeah, I think it, I, would, I would go insane if I, I couldn't think like that. And what, one bit of empirical evidence I think is really good to know is that when we look at hate speech online, and a lot of this stuff is happening online, only around about 1% or less than 1% of the communications or the posts that we see on Twitter and Facebook and so on are hateful. It's, it's a tiny number compared to all communications on these social media platforms. Very, very, very small. So that's a really 
a positive thing. It's it's important to know that that for the most part, most of the conversations that we're we're hearing online and witnessing online are decent conversations. They're not all polarizing and they're not all hateful. Um, and I think it's important to keep hold of that, to, to understand that ultimately um, people at their core are decent. The majority of people are decent. The book is The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. Matthew, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, yeah, uh, listeners can go to thescienceofhate.com. That's thescienceofhate.com. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.